Would you turn your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we continue tonight a series of messages on 1 Thessalonians. You remember the Apostle Paul visited Thessalonica on his second missionary journey after he had established the gospel as a beachhead in Europe. The first church was the church at Philippi. The first member of the church in Philippi was a lady. Her name was Lydia, a seller of purple. Another early member of that church at Philippi was a slave girl, and another was a jailkeeper. Those were the nucleus of that first church at Philippi. I guess you'd call it the First Baptist Church of Philippi. And uh, it was a tremendous, tremendous spiritual blessing to Paul all the rest of his ministry. He left Philippi and went to Thessalonica. He was only in Thessalonica three weeks, just three weeks. During those three weeks, he not only led those people to Jesus, but he taught them some of the rich doctrines of the Word of God. Some of the great themes that Christians today know very little about. And these themes that he taught in Thessal- to the church at Thessalonica are underscored by what he wrote back just a short while later when Timothy had brought a good report saying that the folks at Thessalonica appreciated Paul's ministry. They loved him. They hated to see him leave so quickly. There was, of course, severe persecution. Everywhere Paul went, there was opposition to the gospel because he was a very aggressive Christian, very aggressive preacher. And when he heard Timothy's report, his heart was moved because he loved like very few people have known how to love. And he wrote back to the Thessalonians these precious truths. Before we get into the Word, may we bow together in prayer, please. Our Father, we thank Thee for this opportunity to study the Bible, the wonderful Word of God. We thank Thee for everybody who has come tonight. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will speak to those who are without Jesus, that this might be a night of victory. Victory in Jesus. Open the word to us and show us thy wonderful truth. May the Holy Spirit take the word and plant it in every heart. May it grow and spring up to life eternal. In Jesus' name, amen. There are 19 verses in this second chapter, and I want to read these. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were shamefully treated, as ye know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who testeth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our, our own souls, because you were dear unto us. 
For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. Your witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As ye know how we exhorted and encouraged and charged every one of you as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. For ye brethren became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who, have, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men. What a statement. You ought to mark that in your Bible. Those who say, speak of universalism, or say that Jews do not have to be born again. Some years ago, Bailey Smith was saying he was in public eye much. He was president of the Southern Baptist Convention at that time. And he mentioned that Jews had to be saved in order for their prayers to get through to God. And there was much, much ado throughout in the papers and, and uh, throughout our state Baptist periodicals and in the public press over that matter. Well, you just read this, what Paul said about them. This is what he said about the Jews in Jerusalem. He said they killed Jesus. They persecuted the prophets. They persecuted us. And he, was, and he had a burden for them over and over again. He had a burden that they might be saved. People without Jesus Christ are not saved. Whoever they are, wherever you find them, it is possible to be religious and be lost. It is possible to worship God and still be lost. If you read the Sunday school lesson, chapter 18 of Acts this morning, you recognize that truth. Paul was greatly burdened for people who did not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so must we here in this city of Bowling Green and in Warren County. We need to get the glorious gospel out to the last man, woman, boy, or girl. And then have a mission program that reaches out to the ends of the earth. Because lots of folks talking about heaven aren't going there. Lots of people who are religious are lost. Lots of folks who go to big steeple churches have never repented of sin and put their faith in Jesus. And that's what Paul's talking about here. And verse 15, verse 16, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. I wanted to come back to Thessalonica. I wanted to be there with you. I was just there with you three weeks. I wanted to come, but Satan hindered us. We couldn't come back. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Paul wrote this whole little epistle 
and 2 Thessalonians to set straight the doctrines concerning the second coming of Jesus. Now remember in three weeks, Paul had not only won these folks to the Lord, but had instructed them in the major doctrines of the faith. And when we read First and Second Thessalonians, we read just a little bit of what he had already taught them, what he'd already preached to them. And now he's writing it back to straighten, straighten them out and to remind them of these things. I think you might say there's a fourfold purpose in the writing of First Thessalonians. Number one, to confirm the young converts in Thessalonica in the foundational fundamental truths that he had already taught them. Number two, to exhort them to a life of holiness that would be pleasing to Jesus. To exhort them to be holy. There's more to being saved than getting your name on a dotted line. After baptism, what? After conversion, what? Paul said there's much, much more. There's a song that says, there's, much, there's more, so much more. After we're saved, we need to go on with God. And one of the great problems in the Christian community today has to do with holiness of life. Many believers do not have any concept at all of holiness of life. We have gotten excited about getting people saved, and we need to get more excited about that. We've gotten somewhat excited about a world without Jesus and to send out the missionaries. And we, we speak as Baptists of a bold mission thrust to get the gospel before into everybody's heart and in everybody's mind by the end of this century. We need to do it. Matter of fact, during the month of October, it is our prayer and prayer of many of us that during that month, everybody in Warren County will have been presented an opportunity to know about Jesus. That's a tremendous undertaking. We want to have our part in that. But I want to tell you, after we're saved, there's more, so much more. There's the wonderful doctrines of the holiness of God. And the Bible says, be holy as I am holy. And that's what Paul's writing about. He says, in the light of the coming of Jesus, I want to encourage you to be holy. Thirdly, he writes to comfort them concerning those who had died. There are lots of the believers who had fallen asleep, and he says, I want to write to you about them, that you not be ignorant concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. And fourthly, to instruct them concerning the hope of the Lord's return. Jesus is coming again. Now, those are the fourfold purposes uh, of, the, of the writing of 1 Thessalonians. Now, in chapter 2, I'm calling this uh, message tonight after verse... Look in verse uh, 12. Look in verse 12. That ye walk worthy of God who hath called you into his kingdom and glory. Last Sunday night, I spoke on the subject, what to do till Jesus comes. We talked about chapter 1. And we mentioned those several things that we're to do until Jesus comes. But tonight, we want to speak from this chapter on how to do that until Jesus comes. How are we going to go about doing what we're supposed to do till Jesus comes? How do we do it? In other words, the manner in which we do it. Do we do it ferociously like a lion stalking around? How do we do it? There are four suggestions in this little epistle, in this little chapter, that I'd like to lay on our hearts. And uh, these four uh, suggestions are the four ways that we are to get the job done until Jesus comes. Now, this is the way Paul went about it. 
This, Paul says, this is how I did, dealt with you in Thessalonica. And I, I wish you'd write these down. I wish you'd mark them in your Bible. Because these are things that we need to do. These are approaches that we need to take. These are the, this is a description of the manner in which we're to carry forward the glorious gospel until Jesus comes. First of all, if you'll look in verses 1 through 6, Paul says, I was like a faithful steward in getting the gospel to you. And we're to be like faithful stewards in getting the gospel out. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. For even after we had suffered before and were shamefully treated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold. Look in verse 4. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. Now that phrase, put in trust with the gospel, is the same phrase that some places is translated stewardship or steward. And so Paul says, I tried to do what I did in Thessalonica as a faithful steward. The gospel had been entrusted to me. I could not be like the Dead Sea and bottle it all up and receive it and be its, be its recipient of blessings without passing it on to you. You're familiar with the Dead Sea in Palestine. For thousands and thousands and thousands of years it has received from the Jordan River. The Jordan River has its tributaries in Mount Hermon. And on down the, the, from Mount Hermon, the snowy peaks of Mount Hermon, and all the waterways that come from that mountain range in the north of Lebanon, and the rivers that come from the deserts, and they formed the beginning at Caesarea Philippi of the Jordan River. And the Jordan River plunges down, down to the Sea of Galilee. And that beautiful murmuring Sea of Galilee with all of its glory and all of its joy. That's the word Jesus called his disciples. That's where Jesus stilled the storm. That's where Jesus walked on the water. At the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee, there's an outlet. And the water of the Jordan River that forms in the north coming down and forming that Sea of Galilee goes out of the Sea of Galilee and continues as the jungle of the Jordan and it goes down, 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 down to 1,300 feet below sea level, the lowest spot on earth, the hottest spot on earth, and the deadest spot on earth. Because there is the formation of the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea has no outlet in the Arabah in the south, just desert. Some believe that it used to be connected with the Red Sea. Presently and for thousands of years it has had no outlet at all. It has received and received and received and never given. And deposited in that Dead Sea are the minerals of millions of years, if that's how old the world is. I don't know how old it is. Ever since creation, maybe just 6,000 years. All the minerals are there. And there's not a fish alive in that Dead Sea. And it's impossible to drown in the Dead Sea unless you just hold your head underwater. You can float on it. We were there. Some of our folks went down and decided they'd try it. R.B. Adamson was with us, and he just jumped in with his clothes on and floated around. It's really a sight to behold. 
Brother Jerry did that, some others. That Dead Sea is dead. It tastes bitter. It has no blessing to anybody, and yet down under it are probably the collection of some of the some of the most some of the richest mineral fields in all the world. They haven't even found a way to get them out yet. Now lots of people are like that. They have received and received and received and received, and Paul said, I can't be like that. The gospel was entrusted to me, and I must get it to others. And my dear beloved Thessalonian Christians, the reason I came there was I, was a, I had to be a faithful steward of the manifold grace of God. I had to come with that gospel that was entrusted to me and give it to you. And I've done it. And my friend, that's what we need to do. In the next few weeks, I'm praying that God will raise up a hundred people from our church to go out into the areas bounded by Camel Lane and the bypass and Small House Road and Scottsville Road and survey this area and give the gospel. We have a thousand Bibles that we want to give to people that live in this area where there's a need for the gospel. I want to pray that God would lay that on the heart of our people. God grant that there will be a hundred of us, at least a hundred, who would stand up and say, you can count on me, Jesus. Not just church or preacher, but Jesus, you can count on me. I want to be a steward of the gospel that has been entrusted to me. The gospel came to you. The gospel came to you. The gospel came to you. The gospel came to Paul. And he said, Thessalonian Christians, the reason I went there was because the gospel had been entrusted to me and I had to be a faithful steward with it to get it out to you. Secondly, if you look down at verse five, verse two, verse uh, t- seven, First of all, before I leave that notice, he said, I didn't come as pleasing men, but God. Neither at any time used I flattering words, as you know, with a cloak of covetousness. I didn't come just saying a lot of pretty things. Preachers are always tempted to do that. Did you know that? Let you in on a secret. Preachers are tempted to use pretty words and, and uh, spend hours and hours making beautiful orations that are full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Paul said, I couldn't do that. You know that I didn't say any flattering words. I didn't come with a bunch of pretty things and beautiful phrases and all that. I just came with the raw gospel that men are lost and on their way to hell and they need Jesus. And I gave them Jesus. That's the reason some of you got saved. And then he said in verse uh, verse 3, verse 6, he said, Neither sought we the glory of men, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. I didn't do it to get glory. There's nothing wrong with encouraging people. I believe in that. I don't do enough of it. I want to do more of it. I want to ask God tonight to help me to be more of an encourager. We have some people in our church who are like Barnabas. They're sons of consolation. It's a blessing to be around them because they're, they're encouragers. We need to do that. We need to be encouragers. I believe God wants us to do that. One of the most precious things that ever comes to my heart is 
somebody comes by and says, Preacher, that, that message helped me. I appreciated it. But Paul said, My brethren, I did not do this for the glory of you or glory for myself. I did it because I was a steward of the manifold grace of God. I'm tempted to stay here and just preach on that the rest of the night. I, I can't do it, but listen. If we could get a hold of that, we'd know that when, as a faithful Sunday school teacher, we teach the Word of God and we feel like quitting because nobody ever comes and says thank you. We feel like quitting because we don't have the success that we think we ought to have. And we think, well, I just guess somebody else ought to do it. I'm just not doing a very good job. If we could get hold of the concept that we're doing this for Jesus, that we are his stewards, the gospel has come to us and we must give it to others, we would never quit. We'd just go on going on. Preachers that are here tonight, there's nobody in all the world that is tempted to quit like preachers are. Did you know that a thousand men quit preaching every year among Southern Baptists? A thousand. Why? A lot of reasons are given. Sometimes they don't have enough money to live on. Sometimes jobs, job openings are open and they get tempted to take some job that will take care of them financially. They'll be able to get that done. So they go into that. Sometimes home problems. Sometimes church problems. Churches have been mean to preachers. Did you, ever, did you know that? Sometimes, this church hasn't. Sometimes churches are mean to preachers. But preachers, you go on going on because you're a steward of the gospel. It has come to you on its way to somebody else. And Paul said, woe is me if I preach not the glorious gospel of Christ. Secondly, <laughs> I pray I won't be here all night, but I want to I just lay this on your heart. Secondly, Look in verses 7 and 8. Paul said, I came to you as a gentle nurse or a gentle mother. But we were among you, at, even as a nurse cherisheth her children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. Do you see what Paul's saying? He says, Thessalonian Christians, I came to you. As a faithful steward, yes, but I also came like a gentle nurse or a gentle mother. The word picture behind the word nurse here is the word for a mother who gently watches over her little baby. The, the same word can be used for nurse. The whole concept, we have some nurses in the audience tonight. Nurses give your patients tender, loving care because that's what the original word means. The nurse, it's like it's the picture of a mother nursing her little baby. And when you serve in a hospital, you're not just serving guinea pigs. You're not just serving animals. You're serving people who need tender, loving care. And Paul said, that's the way I came to Thessalonica. I came like a gentle nurse or a gentle mother to feed the people there, 
to give them the glorious gospel. Can you visualize tonight a mother bending over a little baby? All the anxiety that comes when a little baby's sick, temperature's up to 103 or 4, and they walk the floor all night not knowing what to do. Call the doctor, go to the hospital, do all kinds of things, and they're at the hospital, they're just there. I went in the hospital late last night and saw precious Chucky with Karen just standing by, anxious, concerned over her little child, three years old. Paul said, that's the way I came to you, Thessalonians. I came like a gentle mother. And my friend, that's the way we need to give the gospel out. That's the way we need to go to people. That's the way we need to treat Bowling Green, Kentucky, and those who are lost in the dregs of sin with love and compassion and concern. It would reach out to them throw out the lifeline across the dark waves. There's a brother someone could save. Somebody's brother who then will dare to throw out the lifeline and save him. That's what we're to do. Paul said, that's the way I came, like a gentle mother. I hesitate to give you stories tonight for the brevity of time. But stamped indelibly upon my mind is a dear precious mother in Owensboro went down through the valley. I'd known that couple for a number of years since they were little children. I was in a revival meeting there many years ago and uh, this young man got saved and then God called him to preach and God gave him a beautiful wife. And one day they called me and they said, Preacher, our little baby's died. Would you pray? We prayed. Went by and stood with them a little while. I saw that wonderful mother, beautiful, beautiful lady, holding a little child that doctor said couldn't get well. And she did everything she could to help that child in its fretful disposition, its high fever. And then finally, the life went out of that little baby. And I saw that mother who had spent nine months preparing to have the little baby. And then another several months nursing the baby. Try to give it back to Jesus. It wasn't easy. But she did it. Her husband stood by her. And a year or so later, two years or three maybe, the same thing happened with a second baby. And oh, hurt, the hurt, the hurt. As I read this scripture, I thought of them. As they went down to the valley of shadow, placed their little baby in a casket, took it out to the hillside, and we buried those two little precious children. Now Paul said, that's how I treated you at Thessalonica. That's how I went about getting the gospel out, with that kind of compassion, that kind of concern. My friend, that's what it's all about. People are dying. Folks are dying. I had a beautiful illustration of that this morning. I thank God for the way our people treated Donald this morning. So precious. One of our deacons went to get him. 
those in the baptismal room tenderly and gently helped him. And when I came out to baptize, I looked out here and the whole church was still here. You could have gone, gotten a roast beef sandwich or something, whatever you go to eat, but you stayed because you wanted to. That's the way to do it. That's what Jesus wants us to do. God, help us to have the compassion of a nurse, a mother watching over a little baby. Thirdly, look down in verses 9 through 16. Paul said, I did this as a concerned father. For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. Look at verse 11. As you know how we exhorted, encouraged, and charged every one of you as a father doth his children, that you would walk worthy of God. Now, what, is it, what does he mean, a father with, with, nourisheth his children? As a father watches over his children. Well, we expect the compassion and love of a mother for her little child. A father is a figure of strength. A father is a figure of authority. And Paul said, I was like that in giving the gospel to you also. It was not some kind of weak, sissy kind of thing. The glorious gospel of Christ calls for the greatest strength a man has to give to God. And Paul said, that's what I gave you. I gave you challenges that called for everything you had to put on the altar for God. And I want to tell you, my dear friends tonight, God never did call a church to give a diluted, weak, watered-down gospel to the world. Certainly, we can be saved by grace through faith, but we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And so Paul said, I gave you some admonitions concerning works, not to be saved, but after you're saved. I gave you some admonitions about how to walk worthy of the calling that God has given us. And I believe God would have us do the same thing today. It's a farce, my friend, for us to want the preacher to soft pedal tremendous issues that we face today. Don't ask your preacher to do that. Don't ever do that. And as beloved Christians, don't soft pedal the issues we face today. We face some of the most severe issues any generation of Christians has ever faced. Paul said, I, I stood as a father, a figure of authority, to give you what God gave me. I can't help but do less. I can't do less. I can't help but do it. That's what Paul said. Now when we get to some of the issues that we face today, I want to ask you to be discerning. We have an election coming up. Do you know that Jesus said you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world? There are lots of people that turn preachers off when they get into dealing with public officials. They say, well, you ought to leave that alone. That's part of the Word of God. We have a responsibility to find out where these officials stand in regard to liquor. Where do they stand on keeping these liquor joints open late in the night? We had one lady get up here at Western 
and asked for the uh, votes of the Western students and talked about having alcoholic rush parties. And she said, I like those alcoholic rush parties. You ought to find out who she is and vote, vote against her. I'm not telling you who to vote for, but just find out who she was and don't vote for her. I don't care how much she likes dogs. My friend, I'm against liquor. And the word of God says wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Paul said, I came to you as a father, a figure of authority, to tell you some things, to stand for some things. And the glorious gospel of Christ is not some weak, diluted, watered-down thing that you say, well, it's just jellyfish. It's making a difference. Don't take a stand on anything. Don't rock the boat. The boat needs to be rocked. You need to take stands against abortion, murder of little babies. God will not hold us guiltless as Americans for permitting this atrocious slaughter, which is worse than Hitler did in Germany with the Jews. He won't hold us guiltless on that. Do you know what they're doing about abortion? And this may hurt somebody's feelings. You know what they're doing? They're using it as a birth control measure. God says, thou shalt not commit adultery. So they say, well, we'll do away with that. We'll go on and commit adultery all we want to and cover it up by killing the little baby. And God says, that's sin. That's wickedness. And God will not wink at that. And we need to take stands on that. And Paul said, Thessalonian Christians, I wrote to you and I didn't pull any punches. I just pulled all the stops in the organ out and gave it to you like it is. As a father was speaking with authority. We need to take stands against sin wherever it is. Oh, my friend, my Christian friends here. I don't think God wants us to be ugly with people, mean. And the manner in which I'm speaking tonight, I don't want it to be interpreted as being rough or ugly. I just, these things get on my heart and I can't help but get excited about it. If you want some preacher that stands up here and says, well, Let's not rock the boat. Let's be nice and kind and good. And, and let's, uh, we, we, if we're going to take a stand, well, let's just be nice about it and all that. We had to get somebody else because I get excited about these things. It bothers me. I hate sin. And we need to punch it and, and bite it and kick it. And like Billy Sunday said, when I get old and don't have any teeth and so on, I'm going to gum it to death. <laughs> take stands against sin. He said, I came to you as a father, figure of authority. Last of all, if you look at verse 17, but we brethren being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. I think he's speaking here. He says, I came to you as a brother, a loving brother. Have you ever had somebody that was so close to you like a brother? I have two brothers. I love them. We don't get to see each other very much. Hope we can see each other some more. I love them. We get together once in a while. But in the years gone by, they've been dear friends to me and I love them. I think they'd die for me and I would them. 
we meet together once a year at Camp Joy. It's about the only time we ever see each other. And then it's waving across the crowd. I hardly ever talk. But we're friends. I have other people that I'm close to as brothers. You ever think of what is a brother like? A brother is somebody that you can be with and don't have to put on anything. They just love you anyway. They know all about you and they love you anyway. And in the church, we need to be brothers and sisters in the Lord. And Paul said, I, Thessalonians, I came to you as a brother. <clears throat> I'm not putting on anything. He said, uh, I've had, I think Paul had some problems. I think he got depressed from time to time. I think he got discouraged sometimes. If you read between the lines, he said he had a thorn in the flesh. Some people believe that was an eye problem or a, limb, a lame limb or something like that. It might have been any of those things. But I think as I read between the lines, I think his problem, his thorn in the flesh was melancholy spirit. Sometimes he was up and sometimes he was down. He said, lest I should glory unduly, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. And every once in a while I have to go through that. I asked God three times to remove it and he wouldn't do it. He said, but my grace is sufficient for thee. And Paul said, I came to you Thessalonians as a brother. As a brother, loving you. Caring about you. And I believe as Christians we need to treat one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now I want to ask you. If I had a brother, if my brother Roger... And he, I'm very close to him. We used to work in a lot of revivals together. Suppose Roger uh, would uh, see that on the back of my coat was some filthy, dirty thing. Maybe just I'd gotten into some mud or something. And just to be nice, he wouldn't say anything about it. Not a thing, he wouldn't say anything. Other people say, well, I don't know how to say anything to him about it. What do you think Roger would do? He'd say, brother, let me change coats with you. <laughs> You've got your coats dirty. He wouldn't have any problem saying that to me. Now we need to be that way with each other. When there's something going on in our lives that are, that's wrong, or there's dirt, we need to be close enough to one another. And Paul said, this is the way I came to you in Thessalonica. I came as a brother to speak to you because I care about you. And the reason I'm writing to you right now is because I care about you. And we need to be that kind of brother, sister to one another. Not get mad at each other, but to just accept it in love. We're so touchy, aren't we? <laughs> Do you ever notice how touchy Christians are? You look at them wrong. Boy, he didn't like me. He offended me. You walk down the hall and you got your mind on two or three things and you pass somebody and, and pretty soon they say, you know, so-and-so won't speak to me. He passed down the hall, wouldn't even speak to me. You ever had anybody do that? You ever had anybody say that? Well, that, that brother or sister was thinking about something else. If it bothered you that they didn't speak, why didn't you just stop them right there and say, hey, hi, I want to shake hands with you. I've done that a lot of times at the door. <laughs> You'd be amazed. You ought, to, you ought to get a movie camera and come out there and watch that door at the front. I stand there and here they go, blah, 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 blah. and every once in a while somebody stops. And for somebody that's a visitor or somebody that I feel like I need to say something, I run them down. I say, hey, wait a minute. I want to say hello to you. And I speak to them a minute. But they run on. I could get a fan and say, oh, I guess they don't want to speak to me. I don't feel that. I don't take that person. I do think you ought to stand in line and wait and talk to me, though. 
<laughs> but I don't take it personally. Now, folks in the Christian community, we ought not to take those things personally. We ought to share as brothers and sisters and get the glorious gospel out as brothers and sisters. I could add a whole lot of things tonight into this. I've just tried to give you the raw word of God as I saw it here. And it would take three hours for me to give it to you justly. But I wanted to say this. We are bridge builders as we go along. We're bridge builders. Whether we like it or not, that's what we are. Let me encourage us to get all excited. Go tell everybody that Jesus Christ is alive and is real. And listen. Love your church. That's what Paul also said that in here. Love the church. Brethren, love your church. He's writing that to the Thessalonian Christians. And become a soul-winning outreach station. One of the most pitiable things about today's churches. Sad plight of affairs. Is that we believe in missions as long as the mission is done somewhere else. We believe in reaching black people as long as they stay in Africa. We believe in sending missionaries to Southeast Asia as long as they stay over there. But when they come here, they, we better build a mission across town, reach them over there, not get them here. They don't smell like we do. They don't walk like we do. They run around. They don't talk like we do. And you have to spend all that money on gasoline to get the buses out there. And so most churches have scrapped the idea of doing it in a New Testament fashion. I'd like to ask that we do it with love. With love, a lot of love. And be proud that you belong to a church that's trying to do it that way. And get all in and get all excited and take handle and take part of the work. Somebody ought to take bus three that I'm driving. I don't think it's right for the church for me to have to do that. But at the same time, I want to tell you, my dear friend, we need to reach those people. We need to reach those people. There ought to be a man, there ought to be a woman who would rise up and say, God helping me, I'll do it. I'll do it. We ought to, we ought to start some more mission work here in this city. We ought to start some more, reach some more people. I believe God wants us to do things like that. An old man traveling a lonely highway came at the evening cold and gray to a chasm, vast and deep and wide, through which was flowing a troublesome tide. The old man crashed, crossed in the twilight dim. The sullen stream had no fears for him, but he turned when he reached the other side and built a bridge to span the tide. Old man said a fellow pilgrim near, you're wasting your strength with building here. Your journey will end with the ending day and you never will pass this way again. You've crossed the chasm deep and wide, why build you a bridge at even tide? The builder lifted his old gray head. Good friend, in the path I have come, he said, there follows after me today a youth whose feet must pass this way. This chasm which has been as naught to me today.